Right now, I'm suffering. You're suffering so deeply. Because I don't have a dishwasher. I'm sorry to hear about the tragedy that is your life. Listen, (laughs) it is a tragedy. No, that was not sarcastic in the slightest. As someone who does not have nor frankly cares about having a dishwasher, I do understand your plight though. Because that's integral to who you are. You're a dishwashing kind of lady. I just, like, I understand. In a great way. I meant that. All compliments. Like, and I have said this multiple times to people recently, I would rather clean a toilet than wash a dish. I agree. Frankly. Honestly, don't care about washing the toilet. It's an easy task. Yes. There's something about the dishes. I've told you the insane thing that I do where I count how many dishes I have before Mm -hmm. I do them. And I'm just like, ugh, it's a fucking 15er today. Yikes. Anything over 10 is too much. I think actually the main problem, and this is something that I've really come to lately, is I don't like... Because when I have dirty dishes, then even when they're clean, I have to stack them on my counter for them to dry. Mm. And that's the problem. Interesting. See, I don't mind the Tetris of it all. Like, there's a sick satisfaction of knowing that I got all of that full sink of dishes on one towel, you know? No, I don't, because then they're sitting on my towel on my kitchen counter instead of, like, away. What's your least favorite cleaning task? Hmm. What is my least favorite cleaning task? I feel like I hate them all. Mm. Um, (laughs) Just, like, across the board, I hate washing the floors. I never do it as a result. Right. Which, so, like, that doesn't even really count because I've just eliminated that from my lifestyle. And not even, like, in, like, the water. Like, you don't even, like, you don't own a vacuum. I don't own a vacuum. Yeah. I don't like sweeping. I don't mind doing the shower and the tub and, like, all of that, actually. Mm -hmm. That's not the worst. I don't hate doing the toilets. Um, Do you know what actually I really loathe? And this is so stupid. Because, again, easily could fix this if I had a fucking vacuum, but I refuse to get one because I just don't believe in it. Uh, I hate, like brushing the lint off my couch Mm. it takes such a long time my couch is just filthy always yeah which is weird considering i live in my bed you know like i'm not a couch person i'm a bed Mm -hmm. person yeah but yeah the idea of like cleaning my couch cushions it's like oh i'd rather die i'd really rather die i'd rather do like the nitpicky like weird one-off cleanings than any other kind you know like i'd rather like wash my light fixtures or like i don't know like scrub the baseboards once in a while than do like average maintenance hmm which i know is stupid no it just like the monotony of it kills me yeah i feel like that makes sense but also just like i think as i say this i'm aware that i'm someone who has a house that even at its dirtiest looks i think cleaner than most people's homes yes because i thought you were gonna contradict me there and i was gonna be like oh my god this is so embarrassing no no and i think but that's i think you do too for the record yeah oh absolutely which i think is almost sometimes problematic it's like it definitely allows me to be a lot lazier oh yeah which is maybe the point that's the thing is like i have an aesthetic of extreme like neatness Mm -hmm. and so like the neatness and the tidiness allows dirt the difference between neatness and like actual cleanliness is such a thing like so real yeah I'm very neat and tidy. I'm the neatest and the tidiest. <laughs> well, 
that is exactly actually what we're talking about today, even though it has nothing to do with what we should really be talking about on Pantry Staples, the podcast where we dish on your favorite foods. I'm Marika. And I'm Emily. And I, today, (laughs) have thrown theme to the wind. Well, honestly, themes are loose. Themes have always been loose. This is, I... This is a podcast of looseness. (laughs) Loose themes... Loose morals. Keep dreams. <laughs> there we go. Um, yeah. I started by researching, like, toxic mold, and then just really got off the rails, because that's boring, and... It's boring and terrifying. Thank you. There is nothing that freaks me out more than the idea that we're breathing in toxic mold. I'm sure I'm breathing it in right now. Actually, no, your home is very clean, but at my house, I'm sure I'm breathing it in. Yeah. I just, like, don't trust it. There's something in the air. Yeah, I mean, just... uh, I mean, the thing thing about toxic mold is that it gets into what we don't like to talk about, which is, like, very, like, high speculation, right? Like, it's all... There's not actually a lot of scientific data on it. Really? No, it's just, like, Reddit forums. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, yes, the Reddit scientists... Thank God for them. Yes, a true classic, Wikipedia fodder. Mm, incredible. Um, but a little bit about toxic mold. So in the early 90s, no one was really thinking about it. But in 2001, the legal arena for mold litigation <gasps> loomed. Thank you. That was an incredible, incredible phrase. Thank you. The first and most notorious case regarding toxic mold was Ballard v. Fire Insurance Exchange from Ooh. 2001. Uh, and in that case, a jury awarded the homeowners $32 million in compensatory and punitive damages against uh, Farmers Insurance Group Holy for its failure to God. adequately deal with the family's toxic mold infestation. It's Aaron Brockovich all over again. Um, yeah. Is it this is. the case that this was like that Aaron Brockovich was based on? No, it's not. That was about cancer causing chemicals. No, but this is the thing. Okay, so here, so yes, so that was like a whole thing. And this was like this article that I read that was all built, like it was written by lawyers, like for lawyers. And they're like, do we need to like be worried about like toxic mold litigation? And they're like, probably not because it's kind of fake. Like there's not a lot of like research and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and this is the thing. It's like this $32 million verdict was given without any expert testimony linking, linking the Ballard's alleged inju- injuries to toxic mold. Oh, that's really interesting. Like, I think it was the kind of thing where they're like, ah, like, we've never heard about this. This seems, like, scary and, like, very, like, legal. Like, ah, just throw money at them to, like, shut them up. But, okay, not to be, not to be a Reddit scientist over here, but, like, I'm pretty sure there can be some ill effects from breathing in some nasty mold stuff. Like, is that not true? I don't know because I didn't look into that part. But this whole thing, it's like for this verdict, apparently there was no actual like expert witnesses. Do you know, sorry, like this is probably off topic, but do you know exactly what they were saying happened to them? No, I didn't look into it. Oh, that's fine. But I imagine... But it was like pretty like crazy. So this is the other Mm. thing. So like that case happened. Mm -hmm. And then there was like a bunch of like really like high profile celebrity trials. So like Michael Jordan claimed that like his house was like or his like condo or whatever at the Ritz was filled with mold and like had like a big lawsuit. The Ritz, hey, they must have hated that. Also, I'm not going to lie to you. I can never remember who Michael Jordan is. Basketball. That's so silly. This is like freaking John Lennon, John Legend, Legend all over again. 
What are you looking at me like that for? Don't you dare make this like I said something dumb. Their names are one letter apart. One letter, Marika. Ed McMahon also claimed that his mold, that mold killed his dog. So that was sad. That's so sad. And then Aaron Brockovich. The real Aaron Brockovich? Actual Aaron Brockovich was just like, first it was cancer. Now it's fucking mold. God, she's a cultural icon, hey? Yeah. Um, yeah, so, like, as of the article that I read, which was, like, from 2004. Okay. Which is quite dated, but still, there were, like, there's very few books or, like, actual, like, medical reports existing on the subject of mold and its toxicity. But mostly, like, at that time, it was all, like, internet sites, which, like, I'm sure is actually still kind of the truth. Like, it's all... <laughs> Are we mold truthers? Well, okay, but this is also the thing, is it's, like, I think we've, like, always been mold truthers, because this goes back farther than one might think. So here's where, like, I'm going, I've taken this tangent down an even tangentier route, because I want to talk about Victorian design and how it was influenced by anxieties about cleanliness. This is the only thing you actually ever want to talk about. This podcast is a ruse. Honestly, Yeah. I just want to talk about aesthetics and, like, no. anxieties and... Okay. You want to talk about, like... Like, not Victorian necessarily, but, like, mm. Victorian-adjacent cultures. Just, like, white people being stressed. That's... It's your wheelhouse. <laughs> Truly. <laughs> You're literally sitting over here with the most stressed white woman you've ever met. I've been making a joke recently. This is mm. not funny, but I've been enjoying it immensely where people, I like joke about how tan they are and then I go, and me, I'm so white, I'm one-eighth marshmallow. <laughs> That's pretty good. Thank you. I thought it was really funny. I have gotten zero laughs out of it, but I keep trying. Rude. Everybody just kind of looks at me and then walks away. <laughs> it's on brand. Well, in 1842, mm -hmm. we see the publication of Edwin Chadwick's report on the sanitary condition of the laboring population of Great Britain. I'm sure it was very poor. Yeah, it ostensibly argued that foul odors and miasmatic vapors... I love miasmatic vapors! ...were to blame for disease, uh, poverty, and crime. Huh, poverty too, hey? Yeah, it's it's... All about miasma. Miasma is to blame. It has nothing to do with the bourgeoisie and like the upper class and class systems. And no, God, no, nope, nope, no, no, nope. no. It's, it's just a miasma. It's just bad vapors, bad air. So by I'm contrast, I'm blaming then, all my problems on bad air. Honestly, so by contrast, then we like health and like good health and like vigor was seen as an indicator of personal and national prosperity. Mm. This line of thinking is what helped lead to the late Victorian obsession with health and cleanliness, and this obsession laid the foundation for modern English, and by extension, North American, public health, uh, like, policies. policies. Yes. Oh my god. Totally. It's just one asshole talking about the miasmas, and then everyone's worked up. It wasn't even one asshole. It was like... It was all of the assholes. It's everyone who's like... And, like, they really did have good intentions at the time. Like, I think that they thought that at the time because they were so ingrained to think that this was going to be like this was a way to fix people i mean this from a society that literally used to shoot poop out the windows yeah they're so dumb like they're not even like it's and that's i mean i guess like some of them were looking at that they're like 
Okay, so yes, so we have the idea of the home as a hermetically sealed sanitary haven from the filthy fever-inducing public sphere drastically changed middle-class aesthetics and ideologies of the home. What a fascinating, like, just sentence right there. That is my thesis for this podcast. Also, like, sorry, just a side note. Do you know that feeling? Perry once said this to me. Mm. The smartest thing she, well, not the smartest. She said many smart things over the years. But one of the smart things that she said to me that, like, really hit home Mm -hmm. was the idea that, like, you know that feeling that you get when you've been out of your home for too long? And, like, home is just, like, an idea. It's Mm -hmm. not anything specific. It's, like, when we'd moved into the Blenheim house together, she was, like, it doesn't have that feeling where, like, I feel like I'm safe from the germs in there, kind of like not safe. Right. That was a dramatic thing. But it was like, she's like, you know, when you feel like you have to wash your hands because you're like in a foreign place, like you're outside of the home. Yes. The home still felt like that. Mm-hmm. And it takes time before like your germs make it your home where you don't have to feel like you're washing the germs from the outside off. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I think that this isn't, um, this isn't not that, mm-hmm. But I think it's kind of similar. Okay, so one person who was trying to kind of, you know, stop people from just throwing their literal feces out the window um, and make things better. Yes, was Florence fucking Nightingale. So in 1860, and like, she's a problematic fave. I was just going to say, I honestly don't know who she is really. Like, I've heard the name a hundred thousand times. I feel like I could tell you like four facts about her. She's like famous nurse. Yeah. And like social reformer of the mid 1800s okay i'm gonna look more about her and like it's the classic kind of thing where it's like of like white woman doing good at that time where it's like she's trying so hard and it's all about like helping the children but like then she like odd like of course couldn't help but like get like semi like into like the eugenics of it all and like it's always gonna be like there's always that but anyway (laughs) It's just nice that we have a simple word to say racist. You know, like it's so nice to have just like one quick word for it. It's just like a catch-all. Yeah, a catch-all. Uh, I mean, racist is that word, but also eugenics is another catch-all. Mm. So in her 1860 uh, work, Notes on Nursing, she <laughs> recommended sunny, airy rooms and smooth, polished walls so that, quote, bad atmosphere couldn't saturate or cling to the house. Okay, but why is she not wrong? Exactly. And like, that's... I love an airy room. I love a sunny room. I was thinking the other day, I was like, literally at work, I was like, we need to figure out a way to dust the brick again because it's getting germy and I hate it. Yeah. So this... And this is this thing where it's like... So this started in like the 1860s and she's really got to a point where she's really contextualized it and that's like her whole idea of like, this is what we need. Like, keep in mind, it's sunny, airy, smooth, polished walls. And that's going to really come up later here. But when she's talking about this, they don't even have germ theory yet. It's really? St- no. That comes oh, like... interesting. Like 15 plus years later. So at this time, like, it's still just this kind of generalized fear of bad air, miasma, sticking to surfaces. Gosh, that when, is crazy. Yeah, and that's only going to become more intensified as we start to, like, learn about, like, germ theory and, like, actual... Like, the fact that germs are physical things that stick to surfaces and that you can touch and make you sick. And this, from this, the idea that contamination and illness could be lurking in the dusty recesses of your own home was absolutely fucking terrifying to middle-class Victorians. I mean, it's kind of terrifying to me. Like, we literally just experienced this as a culture, like, four years ago. Totally. But at the time, like, you have to also think about, like, at the time, Victorian aesthetics were 
not like we have now. Like you even look at like, you know, I've just redesigned my kitchen. And it looks incredible. And it's a triumph of the human spirit. <laughs> yeah. And I designed it in this way where it's like, I mean, you know, when we were doing it and like picking out cabinets and stuff, I wanted things where it's completely smooth and white. And so like, you can like clean it easily and tell if there's a spill. Yes. And again, we're going to get there. But at in Victorian times, their aesthetics are all like over decorated, like busy, dark, ornate wood cabinets, like a bunch of hung pictures with like crazy frames. You've got vases, you've got finicky little, like there's just always spots for things to hide. There's yes. a crevice everywhere. There's everything's a crevice. And it's like of the episode. Everything's a crevice. Everything's a crevice. And even in like Victorian, they started like talking about these things as dust traps, which were became like a site of anxiety at the time. And so, yes, I'm supposed to be talking about mold and like food, but whatever. We're still in this detour of dust. Um, and so this, I read, a. Uh, couple of chapters from the sanitary arts by eileen Mm. clear which is very good um so here's this direct quote sanitary maniacs not only condemned the nooks crannies tunnels dark rooms narrow hallways and turrets cherished by gothic revivalists they also dismissed the favored features of aesthetic decoration dados decorative carving shelving cornices tapestries curtains and carpets as dust traps or in other words the quote, forcing beds of diseased germs. Inside the dress traps, an aesthetic philosophy became a household, a material household canker. A canker, eh? <laughs> Cankers, yes. This desire to be rid of dust traps was so strong by the 1880s that design manuals were written to help architects and homemakers alike create a more healthful home. Fascinating. Just absolutely fascinating. Like, and this is the thing where it's like, I feel like I've always kind of known about these things and maybe because of like classes and stuff where I've talked about, Mm -hmm. and you can even see the transition from, you know, like in the late 1800s into like Mm -hmm. early 19th century or early 20th century Mm -hmm. and everything does become more sleek, but it's like to like pull back all of these curtains, just be like, oh, it's because they were scared of germs. And I feel like we also can kind of, like, feel that in our own, like, strive towards minimalism these days. Mm -hmm. Like, I think it's very natural and, like, understandable that people want things to, like, look as clean and tidy as possible and to look like there's nothing there that could possibly, like, catch a germ when we're feeling, like, I think more and more oppressed every single day by, like, the sheer, like, yuckiness out there. (laughs) Like, I know that's stupid, but, like, I feel it. And, like, I'm not a very germy conscious person, but, like, I feel like, oh, I have to wash my hands. Or, like, ooh, like, I don't like that I was, like, that close to that other person. Like, I'm feeling that more and more. And I think this is the other thing about, like, really thinking about the home as, like, your own kind of personal safe haven. Mm -hmm. And, like, at this time that we're talking about here, it was, you know, everything was so bad. Like, there was so much, um, like, social and social upheaval going on out there and and like a lot of like really problematic like talk about the lower classes as Mm -hmm. like dirty and Mm -hmm. disease fear carrying and and it's not that we're not doing that now but i think like it's very easy with social media and and the news and everything to just be like oh my gosh like the outside world is scary and bad and like trying to get us yeah so you want your home to be as clean and clear and like and safe safe and that's the thing is like the, I think really what you're going to hit on here through this entire conversation is like, mm-hmm. 
germ-free is just safety. Like that's all they're talking about here is safety. And it's so much easier to project your fears of like a generalized... Like um, egg. Yeah, and like social uh, anxiety onto like physical, like, mm-hmm. oh, germs. Like I can just spray this with bleach and it's going to be fine. Then I am safe. And like what do like so many people who have like some sort of like anxiety disorder or like X, Y, and Z, I feel like there's so many people who really combat that by cleaning. Totally. Yes. Like how many times have you been covered because you're like, I'm a little stressed. I might as well organize this or tidy mm-hmm. this up. Mm-hmm. So back to the 1800s. We have architect Robert uh, Edis's contribution mm. to the 1883 manual, Our Homes and How to Make Them Healthy. And he's warning that, quote, we have covered our walls with papers absolutely delirious to the to bodily health and have had but little regard to the mental effect of jarring colors and patterns or the nervous irritability, which is almost unknowingly is excited by the use of badly designed furniture, incongruous and staring decoration and vulgar anachronisms in household taste. All of which, I believe, exercise to an important degree an influence equally damaging to our mental as bad drainage and improper ventilation do to our bodily health. So he read the yellow wallpaper one too many times, freaked the fuck out, and then wrote a whole thing about it. He's not wrong. Oh, you better believe we're going to talk about the yellow wallpaper. Thank you so much. Um... Yeah, no, this is the thing. I don't think he is talking about the yellow wallpaper. He's just talking about literally how everyone's feeling. He's not wrong. All of these manuals, like there's all of these things about like how to like decorate your home properly for like a healthy, like, I don't know. Yes, all of this. And I mean, we're still talking about that, but like it's guised under like feng shui or like this is how you can have like the most restful space. Totally. And this is basically doing the same shit. Um... And it's so in these manuals, wallpaper is seen as dangerous, not only because it may contain dust or mold. And like, I think because at the time, a lot of the wallpaper was like very ornate. So it like literally was like had, it was almost like a freeze or like a fresco. Like it would have things where it's like, if you didn't wipe it down, you would get like dust and shit in it. Also like, wasn't it made from some pretty sus things? I guess. I didn't really read into like, that. Like, I would imagine that a lot of the painting and stuff like that on it, like, if it's, like, hand-painted wallpaper or yeah. anything, it's probably using some pretty toxic shit in your home. Or and probably... also, like, covering your walls that are already dirty and then just, like, baking that dirtiness into it. I'm grossed out already. Or even, like, the glue and then also, like, you're living in, like, England and everything's fucking damp. So, oh. like, there, it's just, like, it's mold. Like, it's, it's mold, mold city. Um... So that's... Sorry, I just need to briefly interject and tell mm-hmm. you about when I lived in the Blenheim house and everything we owned was covered in mold. I know that you're sick of hearing about this, but one time, Alex, we like looked at her closet. Half of her clothes had mold on them because it, it was so damp in there. Horrifying. It's horrifying. Like, no wonder people were worked up. Obviously, dust and mold is a problem for these mm-hmm. manual writers in the 1880s. But also, the idea that the color and design of a wallpaper could be hazardous, hazardous to one's mental state. And we see this linking, this line of thinking, like it's, that's so pervasive in Mm -hmm. the culture that then we get Charlotte Perkin Gilman's 1892 short story, The Yellow Wallpaper. A story that's traumatized generations of high school and university students, (laughs) myself included. I had sleepless nights over this. 
It's incredible. So, okay. So, yes. So, for those who don't, haven't read it, which, like, you should. It's a very quick read. It's very quick. In this story, a woman suffering postpartum depression is confined to an upstairs room to rest. Mm. And, like, this room, by all intents and purposes, like, it is sunny. It is airy. It's kind of fitting a lot of what it's like Florence it Nightingale is saying. designed for all of the, like, right reasons to be a good spot. Except... Um, this yellow wallpaper that yes. super sucks. <laughs> so, then, eventually... so. It, despite being there to, for rest, she is driven mad by the, quote, repellent, almost revolting color of the wallpaper. Yep. The unsanitary nature of the paper would have been immediately evident to any Victorian reader, as the protagonist describes the wallpaper as, quote, committing every artistic sin by not adhering to the laws of radiation or alternation or repetition or symmetry or anything else that ever the protagonist has heard of. Mm-hmm. It is not surprising that when the wallpaper, quote, gives off the subtlest, most enduring odor in damp weather, an odor that is like the color of the paper, quote, a yellow smell. Oh, what a good description. Victorian readers, like, you know, they may not have made the link between the smell of rotting paper and, like, toxic mold in the way that we do now. But that's a very visceral description. Totally. And for them, like, they're going to be very familiar with this miasmatic theory and that the idea that a bad smell would be an indicator of something unclean or poisonous that is touching you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's even just the idea that, like, the design of the wallpaper is so affecting. Like, for, I think, and that would have even been stronger than, like, the rotting smell for most Victorian readers. They're like, yeah, this thing has, like, it's giving off bad vibes. Yeah. They had the vibe police out in full force. Absolutely the vibe police. And it was like, there's also things in it where it's like, the furniture doesn't match the wallpaper. Like, how very dare? Like, this is a toxic room. But like, it's such a good read. And also Mm -hmm. just like, they, like, I think it's so neat to hear this in this context because I always, like, I've read it a few times and every time I think to myself, like, of course it makes sense that this woman went mad. Like, all of these conditions are horrible. But like, it's neat to hear how quick a mental link everyone in that time period would have made to be like, yeah, this paper sucks. Boom. Of course she's crazy. Yeah. And I think it's like, I think it's another good uh, indicator of like when we're looking back and like, you know, obviously like it is, it has a feminist kind of a slant Mm -hmm. and like, it's definitely what an idea. Don't confine women to their rooms when they're dealing with serious hormonal issues. Yeah. Like, you know, there's so much that she's saying, like, I, I just want to go for a walk and everyone's like, no, no, you got to stay in this room. (laughs) But then it's also like, I think for like a Victorian reader and even maybe for the writer was just being like, no, like this is like, this is the giving bad vibes. Like we're, this is like a haunted house basically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, and it's all because of the wallpaper. <laughs> uh, what is extra interesting about all of this here, um, is the way that this is also very obviously about class struggle. Yup. The newly ish strengthened middle class is in like the Victorian era, mm-hmm. they're distinguishing themselves as pillars of morality at this time. Ah, what a fun time for everyone. Yeah, so it's like, obviously, you know, we've talked around it, but the implication that the working classes are filthy and carriers of, carriers of disease, like, that's so pervasive that they're not even, like, talking about it. Like, that's not even a part of the conversation in any it's of these... It's just assumed. Yeah, like, in the homemaking manuals of, like, how to, like, make your... It's like... It, no, those no. aren't for the working class. Totally. It's also, all, like... And I don't want to be like, con- mm. like I don't want to be a cunt here, but like, 
it's not wrong in some ways. And like, I say that in like a very like, of course it's not wrong. I mean, didn't we see like, you, if you're going to a factory day in and day out and you're working literally side by side with somebody, disease is just going to spread way more than if you're confined to your home with like a smaller staff and like, you don't have to like leave the property as much. Like it, you're in conditions that are not as like healthful. For sure. Which and it has think... nothing to do obviously with like these aesthetic decisions, but like I can, like, it's just really sad that like that's something that they're being blamed for and like is being explained away by aesthetics for the middle class. Whereas for them, it's just like, you're poor, you suck. No wonder you're Jeremy. Yes. And I think like, it's true. Like I, we know now where it's like, yeah, of course, like if you're going to be confined and like you're stuck in this thing and you have to live in close, close quarters with other people and you don't mm -hmm. have access to sanitation like properly mm -hmm. um then yeah you're you're more likely to get sick i think the problem though is that at this time especially uh healthfulness was looked on as, as a sign morality. of morality right yeah. like so it's it's basically just like oh you were you're poor because you're unhealthy Ugh, rather yeah. than really you're unhealthy like, because you're poor of, like yeah eh, and it's just even crazy because, like, I can't even wrap my head around that. Like, that that idea of, like, putting that, the cart before the horse in that situation is just, like, so crazy. Yeah, but then I feel like we still kind of do no. that. Like, oh, and that's... Of course the... we do. It's just the language is different, so it's more palatable to our ear now. And, and so that's the thing. So, like, when they're having any of these conversations about, like, making your home and designing it as, like, this perfect, like, healthful, like... Sanctuary. You know, sanctuary, absolutely. It is, you know, the only time that other, the others are brought into it is as that other. And that like, they are the fever nests, the public mm. from which the middle class home is meant to be a protective enclave. Oh, so dark. But then we also see like, again, middle class is not the top of this chart. So <laughs> this, the discourse is also used to distinguish the middle class homeowner from the upper classes. And it, this is this, like where it gets... I don't know, to me, like the most interesting because it's like, okay, so yes, you're middle class. You can now afford elaborate furnishings thanks to advances in mechanical reproduction, but middle-class homeowners are, may not be able to afford the labor, i.e. like a full staff servants, per, like the humans yeah. required to keep an ornate interior clean. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So, so like on the one hand, you have these manuals talking about like, this is how you as a middle-class person keep your home as your sanctuary against the dirty poor. Mm -hmm. But then on the other hand, you have like the upper class discussing like, mm, isn't it disgusting that they like recently bought that piece of furniture and they can't even clean it? Well, yeah, but here's the thing. So it's like many of the sanitary uh, decorating guidelines seem to subtly or like not even that subtly steer the quote potentially wayward tastes of untrained middle-class domestic designers away from the aesthetics of the upper classes so it's like oh. they're li so you have these upper class people like writing about it and they're like well you're too poor like sure 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 like you can afford all this stuff but you can't afford to clean it so we need to come up with like a new design aesthetic that will a distinguish you from us so like you can't have the fancy shit that we have like no 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 you oh, you could you can't decorate so like us so you need this new aesthetic so that and it has to be something that you can clean yourself because you're not like us you can't afford a servant you can't clean this I mean all I can think of here is Kim Kardashian's completely white home 
it's literally, and that was like all of the articles I read, they were literally calling these like Victorian middle-class homes, like McMansions. It's like, yeah, it's that same kind of thing where it's like Ugh. this new, and it was talked about all the time. And everyone's like, it's so great. It's so modern, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, yeah, cause it's easy for you to clean. And it is, and it's not already there doing it. And it's not copying the aesthetics of the upper classes and therefore threatening to them. Ugh, interesting. Mm-hmm. But what about food, Marika? You might be asking, as this is a podcast about mm. food. <laughs> well, I don't ask those questions when you talk. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but this is the thing: is that it comes back to food. So obviously, it didn't take long for the anxiety surrounding domestic spheres, like as a home in general, mm-hmm. to transfer to the most domestic space of all: the kitchen, the kitchen, the hearth in the home. Nineteen oh six. So we're a couple, we're, we're fast forwarding. We're 12 years from World War One, I, I think. Uh, no. No. I can't do math. 1914. We're 19... Cut this out immediately. No, no, we're both cutting it out. Okay, so in 1906, Upton Sinclair has published The Jungle. A novel that I'm pretty sure we've talked about before, but it's... I don't think um, I've read that. Oh, I don't think I have not read it, but I feel like it's been brought up before because it was very influential this time Mm. so it is describing the quote unwholesome working environment in the chicago meatpacking industry oh we have and the unsanitary conditions under which food was produced gross and not surprisingly everyone had a fucking meltdown of course that same year the pure food and drug act was which we've talked about so many times now yes and this for if you don't you know whatever it's there to prohibit the sale or of misbranded or adulterated foods and drugs in an interstate commerce. So it's basically the law that paved the way for what would become the FDA. Yeah. America's first consumer protection agency. I feel like everyone works for the FDA like really gets off on talking about that. <laughs> like they're all like, yeah. We were the first consumer. We're the first agency. people that they gave a shit about people. We're just like, like um, cool. They're like just gagging to tell you. And so yeah, so we have the same brand of quote sanitary maniacs lobbying the government for quote unquote pure foods mm-hmm. that were writing these manuals and talking about having a healthful home. Like it's the same fucking people, of course. Of course. And also just like, oh my god, calling things like the pure food. And like, it's so problematic. And like, is it food that's going to be made in like small communal kitchens in people's like multifamily homes where they don't have a ton of money? No, 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 no. no. no that's no, no, not no. pure food. I mean, and we've talked about this before, like in multiple different multiple times. And like, and the, the history of modernization and mechanization of food production is really interesting because there's constantly this tension of um, first it's the home is seen as more safe and then home is the safe and does factory is more safe and then you're like you're always back and forth and then eventually you know the factory wins out factory wins all like, the time unfortunately which is insane because like we literally had a full season of food disasters <laughs> where like the factories are not safe like we're not we, I mean we didn't really talk about like every single episode of botulism and shit but like yeah she grabs out there it's just like anytime you're producing in a large scale like you're Gonna opening it up for problems um yes okay so this is what brings me to the design of refrigerators oh intriguing one of the most important ways of keeping food fresh and safe and healthy and edible yeah. involves keeping food cold 
So in the early 1900s, this was achieved with, uh, or by, quote, placing foods on a block of ice or in cold water, burying it in the yard or storing it on a windowsill outside. Okay. So it's like you basically, you just do what you can. To keep it cold. Yeah, to keep it cold. Sense. And then we jump to the, ni- the 20s. Um, and again, quote, in 1923, only 20,000 households in the entire United States had mechanical refrigerators. As late as 1927, 60% of the nation's household had no forms of refrigeration at all. The vast majorities of those that did have refrigeration used ice, but only 17% of those households had year-round ice delivery. Interesting. So people were like, fucked. All they could do was bury it. And hope for the best. Like, the hope and a prayer is, I feel like, the most important part of this. Yeah, and that's why, like, canning was such a big thing Mm -hmm. in the 20s, which, like, we've talked before and we'll talk about again. Um, So those early, like, 1920s refrigerators were a luxury item. And as such, advertisements sold them based on prestige and novelty rather than, like, an actual, like, function. Hmm. And most of the people that actually owned refrigerators at this time also had fucking servants. So it was, like, kind of, like, this weird, like, you didn't even really need it. Yeah. Interesting. But by the 30s, however, technology and mass manufacturing, of course, had made refrigerators more affordable for a, quote-unquote, average middle-class household. And how did fridge uh, manufacturers uh, and advertisers conceptualize this quote-unquote average consumer? Quote, white, middle-class women with young children married to men in white-collar jobs living in single-family homes, mm-hmm. which we call the servantless housewife. Yep. Which is mm. an incredible term. Yeah, truly. Ugh, I wish we were in a society where it was just like, you're a housewife with no servants. How does she do it? Like, truly, like, wow, like, you must, like, need every modern convenience. Um, and, and with that, like, idea of the quote-unquote servantless housewife, who's mm-hmm. obviously white, there's such a specific conceptualization of... Um, what modernity, beauty, and hygiene Mm -hmm. mean. So we have advertisements for fridges in the late 20s um, aimed to address concerns about the dangers of improper food storage and detailed how, with the help of their product, housewives safeguarded the health of the household. Yep. And that's the thing, where it's like, you know, up until then you didn't have any way to keep things fresh, so it's now, you know... What else could you worry about, housewife, who's got so much else to do? You could literally kill your family because you don't have a fridge. And just, like, the idea that, like, this one person is in charge of keeping the entire family safe. Oh, no, she can't leave the compound or have a credit card in her own name. But oh, God damn it, she's in charge of keeping you from dying. <laughs> and how can she do it? The refrigerator. The refrigerator. Early fridges copied the design of ice boxes, which is like basically like a wooden box filled mm-hmm. with ice. But the more they wanted to appeal to the cleanness mm-hmm. that they're trying to sell, uh, the design shifted. So hygiene is being conveyed through the color white, mm-hmm. um, as well as the use of steel to create non-porous interior surfaces, both of which had been associated with health reformers since the Victorian era. So this is the same. This is literally They're what like, Florence Nightingale's talking about. I want a smooth wall. I want it to be like white. I want everything to look really, really shiny and clean. Totally. And that, like the shiny thing is such mm-hmm. a thing. So by the time DuPont, um, which is like a famous 
they do like chemicals and they do a bunch of shit, but like, mm. yeah, they came out with sparkling white deluxe refrigerator in the mid 1930s. The messaging was very clear quote by buying a white refrigerator and keeping it in the kitchen. The housewife expressed her awareness of modern sanitary and food preservation standards. Her ability to keep the refrigerator white and devoid of dirt represented the extent to which she met these standards. I, (laughs) and it's so interesting too, because when I'm thinking of like, when we examine like women in like the media recently, like, Mm. like film and TV of like, sad single women who aren't good housewives that like image of them going to their white fridge that has nothing in it but like a moldy something is so like powerful in contrast to that idea of like a nice housewife with her nice white fridge with all of her nice fresh produce inside absolutely like and i think that that's what like reading this article was so um and this article by the way is called Preserving Women, Refrigerator Design as Social Process in the 1930s by Shelley Nichols. And it was fucking incredible. Um, Mm. And it's like, oh my God, nothing nothing has changed. No. Like, we're... I say it all the time, but people are people through time and space. Like, this is 90 years ago. Mm -hmm. 90 plus. Um, And then, so yeah, so obviously, like, it's white. And that's, like, the first thing. But then also just, like, the literal, um, the shape design of mm. these fridges were changing in the 30s again to align with cleanliness aesthetics uh, the exteriors became more curved and streamlined heavy hardware was eliminated and like the older fr- fridges used to have like legs like they looked like weird like kind of like cast iron stoves mm-hmm. with like separate pieces for legs some of them had like coils on the top like they were very clunky mm-hmm. And then you get into this thing where then we're like, no, 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 we have to quote unquote, this is what GE calls it in 1933, clean lined. Interesting. Yeah, which is this streamlined, sleek appearance of white appliances, and that's immediately linked to modernism Mm -hmm. and and a housewife's ability to uphold modern standards of cleanliness, of uh, morality, of, Mm -hmm. of everything, of everything that like modern means. Yeah. Again, I just like, I have so many just like long quotes, but here's another one. I love it. The relationship of the refrigerator to the physical status of the housewife and the social status of her family was expressed through modern but restrained, streamlined styling. This design language conflated smoothness, whiteness, cleanliness, and Americanism. At the time Mm. when the middle class may have feared slipping to working class status, and when popular culture portrayed the working class, immigrants, and non-whites as having lower standards of cleanliness, these streamlined appearances, appliances, sorry, suggested that women could maintain themselves and their family standards through thrift and hygiene. God, that's so fucking real. And, like, how many books have you read where in it, like, I don't know, there's this one, I do not remember the title of this book, but I read it when I was Mm -hmm. a kid, and in it, the mom dies, and, like, the oldest sibling is trying to, like, keep her family, like, her, like, and her siblings together. Yes. And, like, the idea that, like, one of the things that they have to do is, like, make sure that they look really clean so that they don't get taken away by the foster like system yeah and like how real is that it's like what do you do to project to the world that you're like a good family you're clean clean and how many like advertisements from this era and even beyond like it's all about like there's always a fridge in it's such a strong image Mm -hmm. like yeah i truly and i think after reading this i've been paying more attention anytime i'm actually watching like real like tv with ads which is very rare but Mm. still there's so much 
fridge like <laughs> image is still so prevalent. Totally. Totally. Um, and then this is what's interesting. So again, going back to like, I, I could start quoting this whole thing. Like I pulled up an entire article that I've mm. already highlighted on my computer, but we've talked about it before, but it bears, you know, repeating that bread experience an almost identical ideological journey at the same time. Like mm. you think about bread in the twenties and bread in the thirties. And what does it become? Whiter, mm-hmm. smoother, packaged, modern, wrapped, sliced. Oh, and then again, we have this quote, Crazy. the unconquerable preference of the human stomach for white bread had been triumphantly vindicated, not merely white bread, but the whitest of white. And that's good housekeeping. 1913. Just fascinating. Hey? Like, yeah, the thirties. It's like, again, thanks to industrial baking techniques, bread production was changing, but so is bread itself. Like the refrigerators, 1930s bread is uniform, modern and white. So crazy. And I think I, I don't know. Yes. I, and it's just like nuts. That's something that like, I don't know. When you think about what we, the other things we've talked about, they're just like, we're just picking things up off the floor and trying to eat them and like hope for the best or like the way that we've interacted with food as a species for so many years. And then Mm -hmm. you just think, okay, but now we're so worked up that like our bread isn't white enough. Like it's just wild. Our bread and our fridges aren't white enough. (laughs) There's too many edges. Let's make them more. Yeah. Make everything round and white and smooth. Mm -hmm. That's why I'm the perfect species. (laughs) The marshmallow. Yes. I am one eighth marshmallow for everyone wondering. Um, it's just nuts. Mm-hmm. But also incredible. Yeah, truly incredible. I guess it's just a sign that we have too much time on our hands. I've been thinking this a lot lately. I would not have time to worry about the shit that I worry about if I had more to do. Like hunting and gathering, I mean. I guess so. I mean, I think it's interesting where it's like now... I mean, the aesthetics of fridges have changed, obviously. Like, mm-hmm. now it's more like the stainless steel. But again, like, it's the same. Like, it has to be. Or even, oh my goodness, we could even talk about people, like, the crazy people that have see-through fridges. Oh, the Kardashian and their fridge tours. Oh. Let's talk about TikTok real quick. Oh my goodness. And the fridge restocking. Not putting <gasps> away your groceries, but restocking Restocking fridge. the ice trays. Oh, <laughs> These people are on another planet. This is the ultimate symbol of like too much time, too much time on your hands. Mm -hmm. It's absolutely nuts. It's bananas. It's bananas. We're like, I'm sorry, but when you see that Kardashian fridge with all of the like juices and waters that they have in there, all facing directly and like in straight lines, like that's such a powerful image. Especially because you know that they're not going to eat any of it. Yeah. It's crazy. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. I just think. It just came from the miasmas being a problem. It's all about, yeah. And that's, I think that's the other thing. Like it's all posturing and like everyone, like the same, it's the same kind of shit. Like people writing in Vogue about like what they eat in a day and like what they, what they, how they decorate their apartment, like the architectural digest, like tours. The home and it's tours, like, you know, I watch those obsessively. Yeah. And it's again, where it's this kind of thing where much like, in the Victorian eras where it's like, okay, like you look at a person's house like that in those places and you're like, I could never have this because I couldn't physically clean it. Like you look Mm -hmm. at these homes, you're like, no, you couldn't, you couldn't do it (sighs) because you can't clean it. But then, you know, then there's also the, like the dupes and the, what do you do instead? You have Mm -hmm. these sleep counters, you have, you got a fucking Roomba. (laughs) 
Yeah, like you have your little piece of it. Yeah. Oh. Which Wild. I mean, I I do. I like those styles a lot of the time. Yeah. So it's tough. But. The minimalism does get to us. Although I, I have I want, too many knickknacks for minimalism. I know. But I also like I do want things to be clean. I want to be able to just like wipe down a counter. Because that fear is so real. Like it's in your brain. Mm-hmm. I caught myself, this is so fucking stupid. But I caught myself looking at something in my mom's kitchen the other day. And I was just like, it's not as clean as I'd like it. But it's like, that's not true in any way, shape, or form. Yeah. She keeps a very clean home. But it's not my home. Like, it it was like a weird, like... Yep. It was a weird feeling to be like, ah, this is outside the safety of my little clean nest. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, and it's like, is that true? Is that actually how we feel? Or is that just because, like, as women, we've been told that, like, mm. we need to... It's <laughs> <laughs> a whole other can of worms. Yeah. Not a can of worms, because that's dirty. It's a can of... Yes. Can of Comet. Yeah. Can of Comet. Oh, new thing. It's a Bless. can of Comet right there. <laughs> well, thank you for listening, everybody. This has been... <laughs> something... Di- <laughs> now for something completely different, but hey, that's fine. It's just something that people sometimes keep in, like, pantry-adjacent spaces. This is true. This is true. can't even believe that we didn't talk about, um... Typhoid Mary and, like... striving for cleanliness in a kitchen and how that turned which is a space that people are so hyper fixated on into a disease ridden zone it's too much i only wanted to talk about aesthetics i I don't want to talk about like actual disease no (laughs) all right well this is lovely have a very interesting evening clean your homes or don't thanks for listening everybody uh follow us on instagram at pantry staples pod rate review subscribe tell your friends tell your foes and uh we'll talk to you in i don't know like two weeks or whatever Whatever. Goodbye.